Well, good morning, everybody. It is great to be with you, both in person and online. If we haven't met before, my name is Brian Guy. I am the next-gen pastor here at First Baptist Hanford. That just means I'm responsible for babies all the way to our, our uh, seniors in high school. Now, we're going to be jumping into um, Mark this morning. Now, the thing is, uh, you see, I got here in August, and so... You all had been going through Mark from like right after Easter up until I got here. So we're returning to the text this morning. It's not like we're introing a new series, but maybe you're like me and this is your first time here and you're introducing it and reintroducing it all at the same time. Nonetheless, we're in Mark. I'm excited to be there with you. Before we begin, a little bit of a, uh, of a preface, if you will. We're going to be talking about what the Bible has to say in, in regard to divorce. And oftentimes in the church, divorce is viewed as a, a taboo subject. We don't like to talk about it. Now, with that being said, I have people uh, in my own life who are believers who have gone through divorce, and um, from their experience... I know that someone who is going through a divorce sometimes can feel isolated. They can feel like they're on an island. They can sometimes feel like they've been um, disconnected from their community because of, of X, Y, and Z, whatever reasons. So before we jump in this morning, I feel the need to say that if you, if you are divorced, if you are going through a divorce, I want to assure you that God loves you. I want to assure you that as, as the church, as his people, we love you, and that you're welcome here. Now, at the same time, the, the truth can sometimes punch us in the gut. Sometimes when I read this, it hurts. And so, with that, I want us to be able to approach the text this morning in humility, knowing that we're not perfect, that, that we are sinners, but we worship a God who redeems and who renews. Amen? Okay, who's seen the movie Dune? I know, weirdest transition, right? Okay, who's seen the movie Dune? Awesome. Uh, anyone read the book? Wonderful. I just started it. I'm not very far. Don't ask me too many questions. So I'm going to go based off the movie here. I want to, I want to tell you um, a, a little bit. Dune is this crazy planet that um, death is all around. It, it is everywhere. So this is a planet that is a, a desert-like planet. And temperatures get so hot that if you're out in the sun during the day, like, you're going to die. Their sandstorms are miles high. Uh, and the, the winds of those sandstorms are so, so intense that if you're out there, you're going to die. There are these, like, worm-like creatures that, that roam the open desert. So if you're walking and they, they sense the vibrations of your footsteps, they're going to take, they're going to kill you. Like, like Dune, Dune is the worst place you ever want to live. Now, now this book um, is set in the future. It's science fiction. And there's this emperor who assigns this uh, house Atreides to rule over Dune. Now, 
When they get there, they're coming from a planet that is, is um, overflowing with water. It's a green planet. It's beautiful. So they're going from this horrible place, or this beautiful place to this horrible place. And when they get there, um, they're soon learning that water and moisture is the highest commodity for, for they're called the Fremen, or the people who are native to the planet. Like water, uh, water and moisture are their highest commodity. And we know this because there's this moment in, in the movie where the Duke of House Atreides is with his like generals or with his political leaders in this room, and, and all of a sudden, this man named Stilgar, who is a warrior of the Fremen people, he enters into the room, and he's just ready to fight because his people had been oppressed by um, the, the people who were governing before House Atreides. So he wants to know, how are you going to rule over us? Are you going to be like those people who oppressed us? And the Duke is like, no. You see, the Duke wants to befriend them. He says, hey, I'm going to rule justly over you. In fact, I'm going to let you do your thing. You're not even going to have to worry about me. There's going to be peace on the planet. Like, we're good, I promise. And then Stilgar uh, is standing there with all these people around him, and he's thinking. And then he spits on the ground in the direction of the duke. And all the duke's the soldiers who are in the room, they, they draw their swords, they're ready for battle, and one man from House Atreides who had been sent to the planet earlier to learn their culture was like, whoa, everybody, relax. And this is what he says. He says, Thank you, Stilgar, for the gift of your body's moisture. We accept it in the spirit in which it was given. And then he spits on the ground, and he looks at the Duke, and the Duke looks at him, and the Duke spits on the ground. That is how precious water and moisture are on the planet Dune. Their spit is of great value because of its moisture. This is my point. What one culture perceived as an insult, another perceived as a blessing. We're about to engage in a text that was written almost 2,000 years ago. Our cultures are different. There are contextual things that took place that were common knowledge for the first century reader who was reading this text that we do not have. So it would be wise of us to do our best to place ourselves in their shoes before attempting to understand what is written here. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to quickly recap us on what Pastor Peter um, did almost eight months ago in, in setting up the context of this story. It's going to be quick, though. Here we go. First off, the length and the date of this, of this, uh, of this book. You see, there are four books that teach us about the life of Jesus. We call them the Gospels. They mean the good news, the good news about Jesus. And so those books are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is the shortest and most concise story about Jesus' life. 
And um, with that, we don't have an exact date of when it was written, but scholars believe it was written somewhere around the time of 54 and 68 AD or, or CE. So that's the first thing. Second thing, author. Author. So the author is actually anonymous because it doesn't say written by, right? It's not like a college paper where you put your name on the first page or on the header. Um, it's, it's anonymous, but early church tradition points to a man named John Mark. And so if you were to go through Acts, the book of Acts, you'll see this man named John Mark. He spent time with, with Paul and with Peter, spent more time with Peter. So in learning from Peter, he is learning from a first-hand account, an eyewitness account of Jesus's ministry. So the things that are written are passed down from an eyewitness. That's important for us. Also, um, we, we need to look at the audience. Who is Mark writing to? Because we all have an audience when we write something. So who is Mark's intended audience? Well, his intent, in the broadest stroke possible, Mark's intended audience are Gentiles. A Gentile is someone who is not Jewish. Any non-Jewish people in the room? Really? You're all Jewish? Amazing. I'm not. Um, welcome, Gentiles. So, anyone who's not Jewish. So, here's the thing. Whether Mark was writing to Gentiles who were believers or Gentiles who were non-believers, it doesn't matter. What matters is that we are, are unaware of the customs of, of Jewish faith and Jewish tradition. So thank you, Mark, because oftentimes he explains something. Like when he talks about a Jewish tradition, he'll, he'll explain it in the text. So very thankful for that. And lastly, uh, I'm, oh, with, with audience. Also, his, a lot of his readers are Romans, and they're very pragmatic. They want to know, like, okay, how does this apply to me? Like, how does this actually work in action? Very pragmatic. One thing I'm going to add is... Um, how should, we, how should we read this gospel? Because there are a variety of, of books in the Bible that can be read in various ways, whether it be poems, whether it be artful literature, whether it be a, a letter by Paul that you feel like you need a, a PhD to read. So it's not like Paul. It's not this, this uh, systematic theological way of looking at the text. Instead, Mark needs to be read as a story. Because ultimately, that's how he wrote it. Mark didn't write it like Paul, where he has these, these key theological points that he wants you to understand. Mark is saying, hey, this is who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah, meaning the one, uh, the anointed one of God who is coming to deliver us. And this is me proving that he's the Messiah. Look at, look at his life. So with that, Mark is an author, and he's utilizing literary devices to show who Jesus is. And I want to make clear, when I say Mark, and Mark did this, Mark, we believe that the, the, the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Meaning, sure, it was written by a human person, but the Holy Spirit is the one giving the words. Like a human is penning it down on paper, but... It's the Holy Spirit who's speaking. So while I'll frequently say Mark, 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 it's credit due to God. So 
With that very long introduction, I bet you're ready to jump into Mark, aren't you? Bummer. Here's the thing. I want to bring us up to speed with where we are because, like I said, we are not starting at chapter 1, verse 1. But don't worry. It's only going to take a few minutes. I learned from first service that I need to uh, speed it up a little bit. Think of Mark's gospel as two acts, two parts. So the, the first act or the first part ranges from verse 1 uh, chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 8, verse 26. That verse is important. Don't round up to 9. Chapter 8, verse 26. If you pay attention, this first act or this first part keeps Jesus in and around the region of Galilee. So think of region of Galilee as like a county. We have Fresno County, Kings County, Tulare County. Galilee is a region, and it's more on the northern end. And so Jesus is in and around that region during that first part of Mark's gospel. Jesus invites his disciples or his students to follow him. He casts out demons. He heals the sick. He invites the sinners into his presence. He teaches. He commands the weather. He feeds thousands of people with a few fish and a few loaves of bread. All this taking place in part one. Now remember what I said. Mark is intentional with including these stories and omitting the other things Jesus did during his time on earth. Like, Jesus' ministry was about three years long. I mean, if we wanted to record every single thing he did and said, it would probably be just this book alone, right? Mark is a very concise book. So my New Testament professor, his name was Tim Gettert, or is Tim, he's still alive, sorry. Tim argues that Mark maintains, um, Mark maintains stories of Jesus in and around Galilee for two reasons. This is kind of important. Actually, important. That's why I included it. Jesus is showing his disciples, this is the first one, Jesus is showing his disciples that he is the Messiah. He is the one anointed by God and sent to deliver us from sin and death. That's the first one. The second Jesus is preparing his disciples for a journey to Jerusalem. Really a journey to the cross, to death. So it's in these miracles in part one that Jesus is demonstrating his power and his authority over the spiritual realm, over the natural realm, and even over an oppressive religious system. Now, there are two literary items that are important to remember and that lead us into our text today. First, there is a hidden gem that runs throughout this, this first act or this first part. And it was intended not just for the uh, first century reader, it was intended for every reader throughout all time. So that includes you, that includes me. And here it is. Do we have ears to hear and eyes to see? You see, when Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God through the parable of the sower in chapter 4, he ends by saying, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. 
Jesus performs a lot of miracles in which he heals a, a person's sight or he heals a person's hearing. And that's intentional that Mark put it in there. Because after those, those people are healed, after their eyes are fixed or their ears are fixed, they look at Jesus and they're like, oh my goodness, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one. It's when Jesus opens their eyes and opens their ears that they see that. The problem is Jesus' disciples, his 12 disciples with them, they still don't have ears to hear. They still don't have eyes to see. It's not until chapter 8, verse 29, that his disciples, namely Peter, sees that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus asks him, who do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Messiah. And that, and that was, was a, that, that, that is a hinge in Mark's gospel that, that, that connects us into part two. Because now, okay, it's established Jesus is the Messiah, so now we are going to journey from, from Galilee to Jerusalem. So that's all of part, part two is about Jesus and his journey from Galilee to the cross. So that, so that was the first literary item, eyes to see, ears to hear. The second literary item is a three-time repeated structure. And this is important because we're jumping in in chapter 10. A three-time repeated structure. First, Jesus explaining to his disciples that he must suffer and die. His disciples not understanding. Jesus teaches them. And then all of a sudden there's this series of episodes that almost seem unrelated. Like, just almost like random stories that Mark threw in. You're like, what the heck? And then, for a second time, Jesus says, uh, I'm going to suffer and die. The disciples don't understand. He teaches a series of episodes. And then for a third time, Jesus said, I'm going to suffer and die. Disciples don't understand. There's a teaching and a series of episodes. So that happens three times. Starting in chapter 9, verse 30, Jesus predicts his death for the second time. In verse, in verse 32, 32 we, learn we learn that the disciples don't understand. In verse 35, Jesus brings them, uh, he, he teaches them about true greatness. And then verse 38 begins this episode of, of what seems like unrelated content. But here's the thing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show that it is related. Mark was very intentional in the stories that he put in, in, these, in these brackets. So that brings us to where we are this morning, chapter 10. So if you, if you have your Bible, please open up to chapter 10, uh, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 1. Uh, if you don't know where that is, just open up the table of contents. You'll see two major headings. You'll see an Old Testament and a New Testament. Uh, Old, Testament Old Testament is everything before Jesus came. The New Testament is the life of Jesus and the start of the church. So Mark's in the New Testament because it's talking about the life of Jesus. And when you get there, large numbers are the chapters, smaller numbers are the verses. Can I just say, it is much harder to reintroduce a series than it is to introduce a series. I think Pastor Peter gave me this week because he didn't want to do it. So give him a little nudge at the end. Let me ask you a question as we, as we enter into this text. 
What, what would what your life look like? if we stopped trying to do the bare minimum and strive for more in our faith? Let me explain that for a second because that sounds harsh. I'm sorry. Uh, I think in our culture uh, and just in human nature, we often try to hit like the bare minimum because it's, it's what we need to get by. Like, I was stuck in junior college for way too long, and what I remember from college is, okay, what do I need to do to pass this class? Not what do I need to do to get an A, what do I need to do to pass this class, right? Or maybe when you're at work, there's a, a pile of things that you need to do. Some of it is, like, can get done later, and some of it you need to get done today. Obviously, we focus on things that need to get done today because... That's the bare minimum, right? We gotta accomplish that. We're not gonna work on something to do three weeks from now. We need to, anyways, my point is, it's human nature to sort of almost shoot for that bare minimum, and as we're gonna see, even find um, ways to wiggle around. So what would life look like if we stop trying to do the bare minimum and strive for more in our faith? Chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, as was his custom. He taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Let's pause there for a moment. I want to make sure that we understand what's going on because we have some characters who, who entered the scene here that we should probably talk about. Namely, they are the Pharisees. The Pharisees are a group of people who were greatly concerned with holiness. They felt Israel had drifted away from the holiness of God and they were on a mission to ensure that people were living holy lives. So for Pharisees, living a holy life meant following God's law, the law that he gave to Moses. Maybe you've heard it called the law of Moses or the Mosaic law. That's what we're talking about. So because they wanted to know about the law, who do you think they hung out with? Lawyers. Lawyers, or maybe your Bible says scribes. It's talking about the same thing. Why? Well, because lawyers are fluent at law, right? Like my, my father-in-law, is an he practices employment law. If I have a question about how Peter is, is doing something wrong, I go to my father-in-law because he knows the law. So these Pharisees, they hang out with lawyers or, or scribes, and because of that, they know the law of Moses like the back of their hands. And that's important because they don't want to break the law. So here's the thing, if, if God's law, dumb example, but if God's law said, hey, do not step down onto that next step, the Pharisees would be like, hey, we don't want to break that law, so we're writing another law in, in, in addition to that that says you are not allowed to go within six feet of that step. So that's not God's law, that's an addition to God's law. And so people looked up to the Pharisees, so these, these extra laws began trickling down into common people and society, and it became a burden for people. 
Also, the Pharisees did not like Jesus. They felt he was undermining their teachings and also threatening their place in society because they had a high place in society. That is why verse 2 says that they came to test him. They are asking him a question about divorce because it was, a, it was a highly debated topic amongst religious leaders at the time. There were essentially two schools of thought. There was a more, um, more loose view that said, hey, you could, you could divorce your wife for any reason at all, any reason at all. You don't like the way she did something? Here, cut her a certificate of divorce and move on. But then there was another school that said, no, 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 we do not, as God's people, we do not get divorced. The only ground for divorce is adultery. But even still, God's law, that, that's, that's a high payment for adultery. It's, it's death. So there's that. That's part of the test. They want to know where he's camped because depending on Jesus' response, he's going to lose a group of people. He's going to say either this or either that, and then the people who are opposing that are like, oh, that's what you believe? All right, I'm out, see ya, and they're just going to stop following him. So they're trying to undermine his following. Also, they're thinking, the Pharisees are thinking, man, maybe we can get the Romans in on this. Maybe the Roman government will put him in prison. Brian, how'd you get that? Okay, look at verse, verse 1. Mark is cluing us into some geographical um, points that are really important. It says that he went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. He doesn't put it by name, but what he's saying is Jesus has entered in to Perea. If you cross, in, cross the Jordan, you're crossing into Perea at that area. That's important because John the Baptist was just imprisoned and led to his death for speaking out about divorce. John the Baptist was saying, hey, Herodias and, and Herod, you should not be getting married. Like, Herodias has been divorced. Prison. We don't like that you said that. So, the Pharisees are like, okay, maybe we can cut his following. Maybe we can throw him in prison. Let's test him on divorce. And so, we pick up in verse 3. And Jesus responds. And he asks them, what did Moses command you? Because... They're fluent in the law. They, they should know this, right? Verse 4, the Pharisee said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus tells them, it was because of your heart, that your hearts were hard, that Moses wrote you this law. So typical Jesus answering a question with a question but his question is in reference to the law of Moses, which the Pharisees should be fluent in. And, as I, um, and they were so familiar that they referenced, they gave him a complete reference. They're, they're referencing Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. We're not going to go there. It's, it's, it's a good chunk. But here's what I am going to say about it. That's the worst thing they could have cited. Because it is a prime example of case law. What I mean by that is that law in Deuteronomy is a very specific instance. There's a lot of ifs. If this happens, if this happens, if this happens, this is what you do. It is not, these are grounds for divorce. It's not, 
divorce is okay and you, you, you should get divorced if blah, blah, blah. That's not what it's saying. It's a very specific instance. In fact, God put that law in there because men were abusing divorce and it was hurting women. It had to do with money. It had to do um, with the potential of remarriage. And so God said, I need to protect my daughters. And so here's this law that protects them from what you're doing. So, I started asking myself when I was looking at this, like, okay, is there ever a verse or a place in the Bible where divorce is explicitly outlined? These are the reasons to get a divorce, and divorce is okay in these situations. Unfortunately, that's not found in the Bible. Asterisk. I'll talk about that in just a second. That's not found definitely in the Old Testament in God's law. There's nowhere to be found where God's law says divorce is okay and here are the reasons for it. But divorce is assumed. So in God's law, it'll state if a divorced man or woman, X, Y, and Z. If a divorced man or woman, X, Y, and Z. So it doesn't say divorce is okay, here are the reasons, but it assumes that some people are getting divorced. The only time we see a, a reason to get divorced is in the New Testament, and it's with Jesus, and Jesus is saying um, divorce is bad, don't get divorced unless there's adultery. So it's like an implicit, but it's there. Now, I don't want this to be a sermon about divorce. And I realize that what I just said sounds really abrasive. So please don't tune me out just yet. You see, there are not only legitimate reasons to get divorced. There are times when divorce is necessary. Hear me. There are legitimate reasons to get divorced there are times when divorce is necessary. What I'm not going to do is I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that the Bible is wrong. I'm not going to tell you that the Bible says something it doesn't say. Nor am I going to say, here are all the justified reasons for divorce. Because I believe, as God's people, it needs to be handled case by case. There are no blanket statements that we can throw out there. Because, as we're going to see, oftentimes our hearts lean more toward the Pharisees than they do Jesus. You see, divorce is a byproduct of sin. This is why Jesus tells the Pharisees that it was because of Israel's hard hearts that God had to include a law pertaining to divorce. Divorce was never part of God's plan. So, we can go back to the text and see what does Jesus actually say about divorce? He says, verse 6, But at the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Pause. He just quoted Genesis, by the way. He just quoted creation, God's design. Okay, moving on. So he says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. 
When they, that meaning Jesus and his disciples, when they were in the house again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. Jesus answered them, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. Jesus' response is essentially, why are you asking about divorce? God designed marriage between one man and one woman forever. And his further explanation to his disciples isn't in reference to legitimate grounds for divorce. His further explanation is in reference to the common practice at the time in which men were going around divorcing their wives because they were tired of them. They were going around divorcing their wives because they wanted to sleep with somebody else. They were going around divorcing their wives because they weren't happy anymore. Man, you could have ripped that out of 2022, 2023, right? Jesus is saying, when those are your grounds for divorce, then yes, remarriage is adultery in the eyes of God. So take a moment to ask yourself a question. Why did Mark include this in the story? We can get too caught up in in what it says that we're not asking why is this here? Was divorce really that big of a topic that Mark felt it pertinent to put in right here? How does divorce relate to the episode that's right after it, in which Mark explains how Jesus' disciples were getting mad that people were bringing children to Jesus so Jesus would lay his hands on them and bless them. His disciples were getting mad. They were like, get get these kids out of here. Junior hires, we're glad you're here. How how are these related? Because they seem like completely separate episodes. What if these seemingly random episodes were a way for Mark to contrast the difference between human thoughts and divine thoughts? Here's what I mean. Have any of you ever played a game with a preteen or a teenager? Could be Monopoly, anything. What's one of the first things they ask? They ask, what are the rules? What are the rules? Why? Is it because they want to follow the rules? Mm, Unlikely. (laughs) You see, I introduced this game uh, at our junior high and high school ministries. It's called All in the Family. Essentially, it's a a memory game. You take on a a different um, persona, and people are trying to figure out who's who. Part of the memory game is memory, right? And so one of the rules that I tell students is you can't write down names. You cannot write down names. And then we start the game, and all of a sudden I see these kids with their phones out. And I look, and they're writing down names. I'm like, dude, what did I say? You can't write down names. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You said we can't write down names. I'm, I'm 
I'm texting it. I'm typing it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not body slamming you. I'm gently and gracefully putting... I'm just kidding. I don't harm your children. You get my point, right? It's human nature to try to find a way around things in order to satisfy something inside of us. And oftentimes, it's, it's some sinful desire, and we all have them. That's what the Pharisees were doing. That's what other people were doing. Well, M- Moses said as long as we give them a certificate of divorce, we can send them on our way, on their way, right? And Jesus is like, no. No, that's, that's not what he said. You're just trying to find loopholes around the laws because you want something. You're trying to find loopholes in the law in order to stay holy while you sin. So, what are the divine thoughts? Because that's the the human thought, right? Oh, well, here's the law. I found a way around it, so I'm good. This is what Jesus does over and over in the Gospels. He elevates it to divine thoughts. Jesus points them to God's original design for marriage. One man, one woman. Jesus tells them, this is what is holy. This is what is good. This is what what is right. It's not looking for loopholes. It's, it's, It's not trying to meet the bare minimum It's striving for more. It's striving for a healthy marriage. It's it's self-sacrificial love. It's because here's the thing. You're not going to experience the best God has for you by meeting the bare minimum. You're not going to experience the best God has for you by meeting the bare minimum. You're not going to experience it by finding loopholes. If you think God's best for you is the minimum of, hey, let me just show up to this building once a week, we should call it good. Or, you know, I haven't prayed. Let me just say a quick prayer real quick as my, I'm falling asleep with my head on the pillow. Like, there's so much more. There's so much more. We should be striving for so much more. You see, you're going to experience the best God has for you when you begin to experience the world with divine thoughts. So, let me ask you again. What would life look like if we stopped trying to do the bare minimum and strive for more in our faith? I suppose then we need to ask ourselves, well, what what does striving for more in our faith actually look like? I think it starts with viewing our faith as a relationship to grow and less of a a checklist to mark off. We can sometimes do that, right? Imagine if your relationship with your spouse was a checklist. Wake up in the morning, oh man, okay, got to make him coffee. There we go. 
Oh, got him. Oh, there's breakfast. I'm supposed to give him a kiss goodbye. Come over for work. Oh, geez. Okay, here we go. We got to, uh, we got to talk about our day. They want to know what I'm feeling. Um, okay, I got to check it off. Imagine if that was our relationship. Our faith is a relationship to grow, not a checklist to mark off. I think it also starts with letting Scripture seep into our soul. Like, think about what Jesus did. He elevated those human thoughts to divine thoughts. I was driving home with uh, my wife yesterday from, from Fresno, and she's doing the Bible in a year, and she had gone through the Sermon on the Mount last week. She's a one-week thinker, so she, she reads something, and then a week later, she, she not has a response, but she has some deep thoughts about it. Um, and so she read the Sermon on the Mount like a week earlier, and then she was like, hey, isn't it really interesting uh, and it completely tied in. She was like, Jesus elevates us to not just meet the bare minimum, but to go above and beyond. I'm like, whoa. Okay, so that's, that's scripture leading, letting it seep into your soul, into your heart. I think it starts with allowing the Holy Spirit to do work in you. Because here's the thing, we fight it. We fight the Holy Spirit often. I don't know about you, but... My natural instincts are not gracious. If I'm driving on the freeway and someone just cuts me off, I just want to let sin take over, start yelling at the person, waving my hands, like, what are you doing? My wife gets so mad at me. I mean, I don't do that. Um, but you know what I'm saying? Like, we fight it. Like, God's trying to develop gracious, merciful people in us, and we fight it because we would rather yell at the person. We'd rather be angry. It's just our natural instinct. So I think it starts with letting the Holy Spirit do work in us. I think it starts with wanting to walk in the fullness of God's love and mercy instead of trying to earn it. Like, did you know you're already loved by God? Did you know he's already forgiven you of things you've done, things you're doing, things you're going to do? Like, you don't have to earn God's love. He loves you. Let that seep into you. I think striving for more in our faith is a complete transformation of who we are, like mind, body, and soul, complete transformation. So I encourage you, church, leave behind your human thoughts. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't try to meet the bare minimum. Don't try to find wiggle room around the law. Stop. Divine thoughts. I promise it's going to lead to a life that is way more fulfilled. A life filled with love, a life filled with joy, because that's what God has for you. I promise. Now, before I pray, I truly mean what I said at the beginning. For those of you who are divorced or for those of you who are going through a divorce, you're loved, not only by God, but by, by his family. That you are welcome here. And that we serve a God who is in the business of redeeming and renewing. And maybe for those of you who, maybe your marriage is struggling. 
Things are hard. Man, reach out to somebody. Reach out to somebody. Like, I'm here. I get it. I'm 31. You're probably like, no, 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 I have kids older than you. That's fine. Pastor Jeff's here. I'm not going to say his age, but Pastor Jeff's here. (laughs) Pastor Peter's here. Wait, Pastor Brian's younger than I am. I don't know what I'm talking about here. But we're here. Not just us. Brothers and sisters in the faith. You see, marriage was never meant to be an individual, isolated thing. It was, it's a communal thing. We're meant to encourage one another, to build each other up. Your marriage isn't too far gone. So after I pray, there's a, a prayer uh, table over in that corner. If you need prayer, that's why they're there. If you want to continue that conversation, let them know. But nonetheless, let me, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, first and foremost, we just thank you so much that you are a God who is filled with love and grace and mercy, and that you too have a ridiculously high standard for our lives, and we're never going to meet it. And you say, it's already been met. It's already been met in my son, Jesus. So rest, and let me transform you. God, we thank you that that's who you are, that you're transforming our lives, that you're bringing joy and love and peace into our lives. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would continue to transform each and every single one of us, that we would begin to leave behind our human thoughts, and we would adopt divine thoughts, Divine thoughts that aren't just trying to reach the bare minimum. Divine thoughts that aren't trying to find loopholes. Divine thoughts that are going above and beyond. Because when we do that, we experience such great joy in our lives. So Holy Spirit, we surrender to you. Transform us. God, I pray for anyone in this room who is struggling right now. God, I pray that you'd bring healing and reconciliation into all of that. So we thank you. We love you. We pray all this in the name and the power and the authority of your son, Jesus. Amen.